You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I get to be the host, and I'm here with Dave Hillis, president of Leadership Foundations from the beautiful city of Tacoma, Washington. How's it going, Dave? I'm good, Rick. Although uh, saying Tacoma is beautiful in uh, early February, maybe, maybe is not quite the way you want to phrase it. Rainy. Well, it just cold, depends. If windy. You- Ugh. But the thing is that our last episode, Dave, was all about seeing um, properly, and and I'm I'm right now seeing as as a duck would see. And if you were a if you were a duck, you'd think this is beautiful because yeah, this would be so, this would be heaven, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes, it would be. It's anyway. But here's what I love, Dave. The um, city, the, the our city has now uh, approached the 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 point in the year where. Um, Sunset is now beyond 5 p.m. So there's something to celebrate right there. <laughs> and actually, 5:11 p.m. now. So we're really we're hey, cruising. Hey, well, yeah, we're uh, cruising. But you know, I am excited about this podcast because I don't know if uh, how many are just kind of jumping in right here. But this is connected to the last podcast. So you might want to note that and and uh, do a little mm-hmm. binge listening. But because uh, we're hearing from Richard Beck, who. Uh, uh, you introduced us to, and not only as a writer, but as uh, you know, get to hear him as a, as actually a you know a vocal part of uh, of, of what we're learning, and yeah. we are moving forward um, in a series that we're calling uh, that's based on traditioned innovation, which is kind mm-hmm. of the theme for the year, but but we're more specifically going down the lane of uh, of the idea of a way of proceeding. And so Richard gave us a tremendous context last podcast, but now we want to take a look at um, a different uh, book, right? I mean, kind of the theme of a different book. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I I think maybe to set this up even a bit further, you know, with tradition innovation, one of the things that it'll do is begin to push you uh, into context. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about a particular context today that as as one walks through this tradition to innovation, uh, one would encounter if you're trying to love your city into greatness. And it's really through uh, Richard's book, um, and everybody's going to love this title. Uh, it's Trains, Jesus, and Murder, colon, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny when uh, when... We asked him, hey, you know, Richard, where did you get the title? He said, hey, it was my son. He said, one day, he says, I'm, you know, binging on Johnny. And my son comes up and says, you know, what Johnny Cash is all about, you know, is, is trains and Jesus and murder. And uh, Richard <laughs> said, I made a note to myself, great title for a book someday. Um, so <laughs> that he, is uh, true. Yeah. So he, he wrote he wrote this book. And. You know the the big theological idea uh, that he uses uh, is is again going back to Johnny's uh, moment at Folsom uh, Prison, and uh, <clears throat> he uh, Richard goes into quite a bit of detail about what was taking place. I think it was in 1968, where you know Johnny's mm-hmm. uh, reputation is is a little bit. Uh, kind of beneath the surface, uh, there wasn't a huge market for the kind of music uh, he talked about. He was, you know, continuing to battle with his demons. He decided to hold this concert at Folsom Prison, and the recepts, reception that he got by the prisoners 
in effect, saved him, uh, saved right. Johnny Cash. And so uh, Richard grabs that idea um, about this notion um, that, that really um, a lot of evangelism, of discipleship, of Christian formation um, comes about as a result of being received by another, um, mm -hmm. being welcomed by another. I think that reversal, that the Bible plays with a lot through scripture, that who's guest and who is host changes in very interesting and surprising ways. And so when we think about mission or ministry, it tends to be asymmetrical. Hospitality, I think, introduces us to something that's a little bit more delicate and, and, and dynamic, and that there can be interesting reversals. If you think like the, the road to Emmaus story, where the disciples welcome this stranger in, and they recognize Christ in the breaking of the bread, and suddenly now the guest that is welcomed in is the one hosting the table for us. And I think there's just a number of, of implications to that, Rick. I mean, one, you know, of course, is it takes out a little bit of the hubris or hubris of us walking in and thinking that somehow we've got the answer right. And evangelism or discipleship is all about us disseminating that. Right. Um, it turns that upside down and says, no, 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 it's got much more to do with you entering into situations. In this case, we'll talk about prisons, but whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's a city, you know, whether it is a, uh, you know, bar down the street, um, and being open and you know being humble enough to be received by that group. Mm -hmm. um, he talks a lot about this idea when Jesus sends out the twelve. Um, he sends them out, and the phrase here is to be received, right? <laughs> um, and, yeah. and that. That I think uh, is is quite critical. I think for I mean our understanding, you know, in a Catholic tradition, one of the things we oftentimes talk about that one of the differentiations between Protestant and Catholic you know, theology is that when you take when you go to a communion in the Protestant Church, uh, the institution is you take it. Uh, mm -hmm. In the Catholic Church, you receive Eucharist. And uh, I think it's the Catholic sense here that Richard is really tapping into that that our proper posture as we enter into this world um, is to be open and willing uh, and pliable enough to actually be received by the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a that's a bit of what he's trying to get at in this particular book. Uh, trains Jesus murder the gospel according to Johnny Cash. Yeah, what a great title. And in fact, I don't know if uh, if Richard um, requires this, but I would I would add uh, as a footnote the uh, the movie Walk the Line with Joaquin Phoenix. You know, where he, <laughs> this this is you know uh, the scene when he goes to Folsom um, yeah. is I don't know how actually you know literally factual it is, but it does capture that that yeah. idea that. Um, you know, everybody in his industry and in his, you know, his entourage was saying, this is a terrible idea. And he just, exactly. uh, these were his, these were his people, you know, and uh, yeah. 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 I mean, um, so, I, you know, last podcast, you know, Rick, we talked a little bit about Richard's understanding and, and really reappropriating of uh, Teresa of Lisieux's little way. 
um, this idea about seeing, about stopping, and then approaching. <clears throat> it's in the last movement, approaching, where I think this idea about being open to being received by another becomes you know, really critical. Because apart from that, I mean, you can approach in some pretty vulgar, uh, even violent ways. I mean, right, there's, there's right. nothing quite like what you know, sends a shudder through you when you hear uh, so-and-so's approaching. I mean, it's like, well, you know, for yeah. what reasons and uh, what, what might be the, the idea behind it. The whole idea of approaching for Richard is that you approach in order to be received. And that, I think, changes um, this whole idea of, of approach <clears throat> so that when you get into something like prison reform, I mean, there, there's an approach, right, that, mm -hmm. that I think most people would say, well, yeah, that's absolutely something that you have to do. I mean, we've got to reform this thing. But for Richard, <clears throat> it's like, yes, you approach the prison uh, and the system, <clears throat> but you approach it in such a way excuse me, that you can be received by it. So going back again to Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash probably did more to reform the prison system um, in his concert than most, quote unquote, you know, people who are all about reform were able to accomplish. And the principal reason is because he was open to being received. Uh, in fact, in a very literal way, uh, was given a standing ovation by these inmates uh, at Folsom. And it's in that kind of sharing, you know, that kind of uh, both approaching and receiving <clears throat> that I think, um, you know, real change uh, actually begins to take place. And, you know, I think, Rick, if, if for some people, they're maybe scratching their heads going, I'm not quite sure. I think all you have to do is begin to think about your own life and think about uh, where have been those transformative moments, um, right? Those ones that you look back at and go, wow, I mean, I was one way before that and I was another way after that. And I would argue that probably almost without exception, it's because in your approach, um, you were open to receive. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that you and I've talked a bit about, just because we're both kind of in this space, uh, you know, is this thing called grandparents. Um, and, um, you know, we both have shared, you know, our stories, but one of the things that's remarkable for me is that I'm, you know, six little grandkids from, you know, eight now to nine months. Um, and I approach them, um, right. As, as a grandparent might, but the real magic, uh, is what I receive, um, mm -hmm. their sense of humor, their perspective, um, their own, you know, kind of unadulterated, um, kind of uh, love for me. And so I think that, you know, again, in a very, you know, kind of small way, um, you know, anima animates this larger idea about what it means uh, to approach in order to receive. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that happens, Dave, is when, um, when someone does approach to be received, it, it changes how we see not only the grandkids, but also the, the prisoners. You know, I mean, exactly. all of a sudden it turns yeah. the lights on for us. And I think that um, especially in our world where we sort of um, we think, well, there's got to be a legislative solution for everything. Yeah. You know, we'll pass a new guideline and that's the way things get reformed. And this is such a, a different uh, idea of reform through, um, you know, through a 
you know, a moral, uh, you know, venue versus, you know, just a, uh, some kind of transactional thing. And so I think this is going to be great. Um, uh, the, the idea of seeing through the eyes of another, you know, that hospitality and empathy and then approaching and then being received is very powerful. And, um, it's kind of like once somebody, you know, articulates it, you think, yeah, (laughs) you know, but you know, that's not necessarily has been, but it's definitely a, a way for us, a a way of proceeding. It gives us some great, great um, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's going to be further fleshed out is of course there is the, the, you know, kind of Uber narrative of Johnny Cash, but Richard then begins to talk a bit about his own, um, you know, reception by a, uh, a prison that he works in every Monday, he uh, facilitates mm-hmm. a Bible study and he, he in no short order, just says they, they have saved me. He calls them the men mm-hmm. in white. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what that of course is, is uh, unveiled as well as leadership foundations work. Um, we're going to talk with uh, three leadership foundations, the Memphis leadership foundation, uh, the leadership foundation in Rochester Minnesota and the one in Dallas, Texas, who are all doing uh, prison reform work in very different contexts. But I think one of the characteristics that they all hold in common is this notion that as they approach their particular uh, uh, Department of Corrections system, they were doing it in order to be received. Um, Mm -hmm. This idea about reformation as reception um, Mm -hmm. kind of gets out and away from this sort of archaic, broken notion that I've got the answer and and you need to, you know, somehow get with it, uh, get into the program. Uh, rather, it's it's much more reciprocal, much more equivocal moving forward. Yeah. And and it also accommodates the, the diversity we've talked about of uh, local leadership foundations where the way of approaching in Dallas is unique to the way of approaching in Memphis, you know, but, um, but at the That's same right. time, it's, 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 it is, uh, it is a, an innovative tradition way. Yep. Uh, and I think Richard helps us with that. So our roving reporter, which we know is Noah basket, he's going to be interviewing uh, our local LS and it's going to be a fascinating, um, not only, um, you know, uh, you know, principled and theoretical, but then really practical as we, as we hear from folks that are involved in, yep. in seeing, stopping, and then approaching to be received. So let's listen in. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks Rick and Dave. I did get the great privilege to talk to three of our local leadership foundations, uh, the next chapter ministries out of Rochester, Minnesota. Well, I am Courtney Dugstead. I am the executive director of Next Chapter Ministries here in Rochester, Minnesota. The Memphis Leadership Foundation, Memphis, Tennessee. Anthony Branch is service president and chief operating officer for Memphis Leadership Foundation. And I'm KUC Donald, uh, executive director of economic opportunities or program ministry of the Memphis Leadership Foundation. And the Dallas Leadership Foundation out of Dallas, Texas. I'm James Reed, and I'm the director of the Prison Reentry Department. And I'm Will McCall, president and CEO of Dallas Leadership Foundation. And yeah, it was pretty remarkable to hear uh, as they talked about their work in prison ministry and um, 
uh, the various programs that they run, just how much it connected with what Richard Beck was describing in his uh, work with discovering and uh, uncovering God in the one who offers hospitality in his own work in and around prisons. So I'll, uh, I'll let them talk about their actual work working with prisoners. And first up, here's Courtney describing the work of Next Chapter, the Rochester Leadership Foundation. Uh, our founder, Andy Kylan, actually started going into the local jail on accident. He was a truck driver at the time, and somebody wasn't able to go in and do a Bible study, and they asked him to do it. And so he did, and he never stopped. And so for a really long time, it was, um, <clears throat> well, by a really long time, I mean a couple of years, um, he was in the local jail um, meeting with the guys there doing Bible studies. And so it really was a prison ministry. And what he was finding, um, which is now common knowledge, right, is that there was a cycle of same guys that would come and sit in front of him and listen to what he had to say and feel inspired about it and really truly believe that that's what they wanted was that hope and that something different he was presenting with the gospel. But then when they would get out, they didn't have the basic needs and the resources to even be successful, right? So you're really looking at a picture of James. Like when you're saying to somebody who's homeless and hungry, like, I'll pray for you. Well, that's great, but I'm still homeless and hungry, right? And so um, he determined right away that we needed to do something different. And so he started, uh, which was wildly unpopular, by discussing the idea of having transitional housing for reentry here in Rochester. He was the very first person to do it. And, and so we have this little community of homes. Three of them are discipleship homes for um, men coming out of incarceration with the goal of restoring them to God, their families, and their community through holistic gospel transformation. So looking at the person as a whole, all of the pieces that go into what made that person from their past, what is showing up from their past to, to today and then also looking into the future. So um, we also have one of our homes is a non-residential home for women and teens that are engaged in mm. the cycle of incarceration. And then we have a home for either a single mother or a single father and their children that are exiting the cycle of incarceration um, and working towards really proactively restoring that family with a, so within a supportive environment with wraparound services to really, really help that family um, thrive and become healthy. Um, all of our programs are run through a trauma-informed care model, and we work with the whole family. So we don't just work with the individual coming out of a prison. We engage the entire family. And then we've got the work of the Memphis Leadership Foundation, working with folks uh, exiting prison as well. So uh, somewhere around 1991, uh, Larry Lloyd, who's the CEO of uh, the Memphis Leadership Foundation, uh, launch uh, economic opportunities as a on-the-job uh, training ministry for the re-entry uh, participants who were getting out of prison. Uh, and they would do a lot of uh, OSHA 10 training, forklift certification, life skills, and they were having periodic opportunities to refer them to uh, jobs, but sparingly. Uh, but around 19, I mean, sorry, 2017, uh, the model evolved. So economic opportunities have been around in the program of the Memphis Leadership Foundation for 30 plus years. But around 2017, the, the need kind of shaped and transitioned the ministry into a third party employer uh, ministry. 
And you know, this, yeah, um, this was a, when, when it started, it was an uh, opportunity uh, that uh, Memphis Leadership Foundation saw that uh, those that were being recently released from prison could not obtain jobs because they had no work history and um, started economic opportunities so they can actually be acclimated back to um, um, uh, back into employment. And this provided an opportunity for them to train uh, on the job training and, and even get some spiritual guidance uh, in, uh, in life skills so that they can actually obtain those jobs because many of those employers wanted to see do you have any job history? So we wanted to make sure that we provided that for those, those participants, which helped them uh, tremendously to move forward in attaining uh, uh, substantial employment. And then the Dallas Leadership Foundation's work that does work with prisoners, uh, both while they're still in the local jail, uh, as well as as they are exiting incarceration. So when I first came to Dallas Leadership Foundation, it... Um, uh, gosh, 21 years, 21 plus years ago, I came from uh, a lay leadership position at my church as a our reentry, our prison ministry uh, director there. So uh, I had a deep love and commitment to prison ministry and reentry. And uh, that work was not being done just yet at Dallas Leadership Foundation. And we focused on neighborhoods. And what we found were the zip codes that our neighborhoods were in were some of the highest um, recidivation, uh, re-entry back from prison zip codes in the county. So um, shortly afterwards, and we had a number of our church partners who were good at going into prisons, but had a tough time serving men and women when they came out. So we started our reentry program. You know, the other thing that was really striking as you hear just how impressive the work of these three organizations is, is just, you know, in good leadership foundation fashion, how well they know uh, their context, how well they know how this particular issue around incarceration is affecting their city. So you're going to hear a little bit uh, from the three of them about how this particular issue is shaping their context. So Next Chapter started as a prison ministry over 20 years ago. And um, when you are talking about our particular city of Rochester, Minnesota, we are a destination medical center and we are very innovative. Everything about Rochester is innovative. Everything about um, our city is desiring to be creative and looking forward instead of looking back. And so when you have a ministry like Next Chapter that has been here for 20 years, it is this beautiful marriage of we exist in a city that is known for its innovation, like nationwide and internationally, we are known for our innovation. And to have something rooted in this community for 20 years is, um, is quite a big deal. One out of six households is impacted by the cycle of incarceration. That is astronomical. And I bet you nobody would guess that that would be the case. Now, I'm talking about Minnesota because it's the city, it's the state that I live in that I love. I would, I'm not sure what it would be in every state, but it's probably very similar. The state of Minnesota itself incarcerates more people than Canada, France, and the United Kingdom combined. Just the state of Minnesota. So, 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 so in, in Shelby County, 
annually about 7,000 individuals are released uh, back into uh, society uh, coming out of incarceration. Uh, on any given time, there's an average of about 22 to 23,000 individuals on some type of probation, parole, community corrections, or supervised monitoring. And so that's a large number of individuals that we're asking to uh, reacclimate themselves and be successful in society. Although they have a probation officer, the probation officer's caseload usually is about 75 to 125 people. And so having caseloads of that size, it's impossible to give those individuals the intent, the attention they need to really improve their spiritual, personal, and professional growth opportunities, as well as develop life management skills. And so that creates a need uh, in our community. And also the national recidivism rate is at least 76%. So over uh, three to five years, the expectation is at least 76% of those individuals that are released will be reincarcerated. And, and that kind of creates the needs for a program like ours. Uh, and I can say that those who have participated in our Economic Opportunity Shepherd Model program, we have a, a less than 10% recidivism rate uh, for those individuals that, that have been in our program. Our neighborhoods are probably not dissimilar to many neighborhoods that are low income across the uh, country and probably beyond our country. And we have high unemployment, um, low places for living wage work, uh, poor preparation for the current economy, uh, low educational outcomes, and a lack of hope because of all of those uh, factors that are prevalent all around them. So it's tough to uh, find an economy that one can make a good living in many of our neighborhoods outside of things that are illegal. One of the things that comes out in these interviews really vividly is just how challenging the issues facing formerly incarcerated people are and how it's almost impossible to actually uh, be successful in that process without some help. Courtney has a really great description of what this looks like in Rochester, so I'll let her share. One out of three men and youth of color will see the inside of a jail cell. One out of seven Latinx men will see the inside of a jail cell just from being born. And after all, all that effort to lock people up, it doesn't even have a great ending because over 60% of people that are released go back into our system. It costs more money to incarcerate someone for a year than to educate them. And I'm talking about college educate them. And over 80% of adult male prisoners that were given the Adverse Childhood Experience Assessment, or ACEs, over 80% of adult male prisoners had a score of four or more. So what that means is that the adults that were incarcerating in hopes of them taking responsibility for those that they have hurt are actually people who were also hurt. 
in some pretty horrific ways. So at some point, we're going to have to come to terms with that, that our solution for adults who have unresolved trauma from their childhood is to put them in cages for the ways that that has manifested itself in their actions as adults. On top of that, over half of our prisoners are locked up on charges related to substance abuse. And over 30% of our jails and prisons are filled with people who had a probation violation. So if you're familiar with a probation violation, that could mean they missed an appointment. Uh, It could mean they had a traffic ticket. It could mean that they relapsed and had a dirty UA, which, by the way, is incredibly common when you're talking about overcoming an addiction, right? Yeah. And also over 82% of our nation's prisoners are also parents. So once a family is justice involved, it is extremely difficult to break that cycle for the children, unless that there's an actual intervention and uh, supports and a pathway out of the cycle. So by incarcerating the parent, you're also incarcerating the whole family, which includes these little babies and these little kiddos that are not guilty of anything, right? Um, It's incredibly difficult to break that cycle. And here's here's some really terrible news. If that isn't bad enough, I have also some terrible news. Our nation is addicted to mass incarceration. And it is rooted in systemic racism that dates all the way back to the 13th Amendment. It states that all people are free unless you're a criminal, and then you are a slave forever. There are over 5 million people in the United States that are unable to vote for the officials who will make decisions over their lives because of a felony on their record. Their citizenship has been stripped forever, even if they already paid the penalty for their crime. So they can pay taxes, but they can't vote. So when I talk about the cycle of incarceration, I'm not necessarily talking about every time that you go to prison or jail, right? Although that is very, very common. I'm talking about entering into this cycle that starts... um, So it starts the minute that the justice system gets involved. And sometimes that's in the form of social services. So for some children, their entrance into the cycle of incarceration and being justice involved actually starts from birth. And it is a really difficult um, cycle to exit because the system itself isn't designed for exit, if that makes sense. But statistics and data would show, right, that this punitive cycle doesn't work because the cycle is punitive by nature. And so grace is not a part of a cycle of incarceration. Even after you are finished doing your time, if you will, those words, um, you are still a felon. And what that means is when you have certain felonies on your record, you are no longer allowed to vote ever. It does not matter if you have done your time. So what does this doing time even mean, right? It means like the the portion of time that you're actually locked up. But when you exit that portion and you have a criminal history, uh, for instance, in our city, which I love, um, they do not, because of our desire to be innovative and creative in this destination city, we do not have housing for people with criminal histories. So one out of six households in Minnesota 
has somebody in it with a criminal history, okay? And most often it's the father. And so when you look at that and and people are unwilling to uh, rent to people with criminal histories, um, it's almost impossible right there. When you also look at things like um, exiting the cycle, either on parole or probation, you are still being viewed as a criminal, right? And so there's somebody still monitoring your life even after you've done that time. So you've got this this seemingly unending cycle of what incarceration looks like that Courtney speaks to so well um, that feels <laughs> so depressing. Um, I think the hopeful thing that does come out in talking with several of these local leadership foundations is that, yes, this is a really big problem uh, that's going to take a lot of work. But whatever the shape of that work uh, is going to look like, it really is going to be through uh, the transformative power of relationships. And Kayusi Donald speaks to this really well, what's going on at the Memphis Leadership Foundation of how they are walking alongside um, people coming out of prison, um, serving as mentors, coaches. They use the word shepherds. So I'll let him speak to the great work that they're doing in that area. Uh, those guys or, or ladies now, uh, usually when they're getting out of prison, they don't have a work history. So it's hard to find employment. And so what we saw and what we tried to do is they're on probation and parole and the parole officers are asking them to get a job and make better decisions, right? And so what we want to do at ECOP is we want to help them with those two requests in, in major domains is to get a job and to make better decisions. And we, we, we found that through uh, a life coaching relationship a workplace mentoring relationship with an individual we call a shepherd is their greatest advantage of obtaining the two. And so uh, we have what we call a shepherding model where when they are enrolled into the program, they're connected in a cohort and a teamship uh, with a leader called a shepherd who then places them in a job or worksite uh, assignment or employ employment opportunity. And during that time, a shepherd meets with them for daily devotion before they start their work shift. Uh, during this entire employment opportunity, uh, they're working one-on-one -on -one with a shepherd to develop a life plan. Uh, they're developing career goals. The shepherd is helping them navigate resources in the community uh, to connect uh, with accomplishing those goals. Or if it's driver's license, getting them connected with uh, uh, just ministries and opportunities to uh, overcome the financial burden of uh, reinstatement fees and, dry, and fines, uh, but also just making it to the required appointments. The shepherd aids with all of that, uh, along with uh, developing these life plans uh, while they're in the program. And those life plans actually helps with uh, life skills, decision-making opportunities, because there's a number of goals that are set up for them to accomplish when they're completing the life plan. And we all know as business professionals, especially in corporate America, what type of employees are employers looking for? And those are goal-oriented uh, uh, employees that have those goal-oriented habits. 
And so what we're trying to do while they're in the program alongside of the shepherd is modeling what does it look like to develop and build goal-oriented habits over a period of time. And the more goals they accomplish during the, the completion of the life plan, the more habits we're hoping to build uh, and the more that translates to ongoing success for these individuals uh, that are in this relationship with our show. Even as a as a mentor, the shepherds as a mentor to these individuals that are recently incarcerated, um, a, a uh, more of a buffer sometimes because coming out of uh, just recently uh, been incarcerated, there are some skills that they're lacking, and when enter a job situation, there may be some poor decisions that are being made. Um, in in the real world, what would happen sometimes they uh, these individuals will get um, reprimanded or they may get released from the job. But having that life, that shepherd, that life coach on board with them, that can be a, a more of a mentor or a buffer between that supervisor and that particular participant to really walk them through. Uh, th these are the mistakes that you've made. What kind of decisions do you need to make in, in regards to this? So it really gives them a chance to really understand themselves and understand the, the, the workforce also. So it's a it's a it's an awesome model for those participants, as well as for the companies that are participating with uh, the Economic Opportunity Shepherding Program. And then this aspect that came up in uh, talking with Will and James out of Dallas is uh, this other real emphasis of uh, leadership foundations that comes out in their work, which is actually seeing uh, these people that are in the local jail as uh, leaders, as people with a lot of leadership capability. And um, I think that's so rare, right? Typically, we think of uh, the kind of people that end up in prison or jail as a burden on society. That's not at all how Dallas Leadership Foundation sees the people that they work with. So uh, James and Will are going to share a little bit about that perspective. Well, I, I like I really like the fact that, you know, in our mission is to identify, affirm and to develop leaders. And what we come to find that there are a lot of men in there who just haven't had the opportunity to get to know, first of all, who they are and whose they are. In other words, they don't really, really know that God had created them <laughs> to lead uh, and to be leaders. And, 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 and what we try to do is, is really spend that quality time nowhere on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, where we have identified uh, several guys that are in our program who articulate in some way down in where they've been in there, have the ability to know how to connect and, and lead others in a positive way. So what we did was, was that you know, I asked a certain group of people, I said, if you guys can really identify your peer in here, who you know that really actually is is really walking the walk and really loves God and really spending time with God, let's identify these individuals. And they did. And we all got together and, and began to start 
um, giving these individuals some little small responsibility. And my God, when we put that responsibility in each one of those men, seven of those men's hands, it was incredible to see the results of their response to wanting to be able to take that small responsibility and do great with it, to do great things with other men that was in our program. And so we do our discipleship every week with them. I sit down with them every week and we talk about how do we deal with people who have problems, conflict resolutions, all kinds of things that we teach them on a daily basis. And what I discover is a lot of these brothers have these attributes and these characteristics that just was being hidden by the, the sin and the darkness in which it is that they were living. And it, it really began to start allowing them to be able to step up and show that I can be responsible for the little things. I, I was just, the only thing I was gonna say is it's, it's a process of creating good new habits. And, and, and what James leads is a process where they're finding, uh, one, it's a leadership. So everyone has a leadership gift. We, that's one of our founding uh, beliefs. So God has given everyone ability to at minimum lead their own lives well, and then lead lives of their family. And then wherever God makes room for their gifts beyond there. And, and what they do is they lead life, but part of leadership and learning what leadership is, is learning great fellowship. So it's a practice and it's a habit and it's, it, it is flexing that muscle of good decision-making, which is connected to good fellowship, which moves us to good leadership. And they're practicing that inside prison. So when they get out and have to make several decisions, they've been doing it in the context of deep abiding relationships for months or several years. And so when they get out into the real world, they have the ability to make good decisions, which led uh, the last, uh, the TDCJ, which is Texas Department of Criminal Justice, just did a study on our guys from 2018 to 2020, and they had a 2% recidivism rate uh, compared to uh, they have an average in the high 20s and really in Dallas County, 67 percent and similar across the country. So some pretty incredible and remarkable work uh, and impact. And then the last thread that I, again, thought was so uh, telling in uh, the three of these local leadership foundations describing their work with prisoners, people that were formerly incarcerated is this idea of hospitality that uh, Richard Beck brought up and how really this understanding, if you enter in deeply into real relationship, is how uh, it really does get upended. And the people that we think that we're serving are actually the people that are serving us. Courtney describes this really well in a beautiful image of what table fellowship looks like in their work in Rochester. Yes. And so I love this because it's exactly what you said. It is a shift in power. And if we want to have, um, <laughs> if we really want to have like racial reconciliation, if we want to have uh, really restorative practices in our community, those that have had privilege and power and dis 
decision-making opportunities that others haven't, we have got to put ourselves in a place where we are receiving hospitality from those that traditionally we believe we're serving. And so that is one thing we do. The guys, every week, they take turns making a menu, they grocery shop, they cook and they serve for one another in a family dinner style. They sit down, we sit down at the table, we use the good china, (laughs) we share a meal and we just connect. And it is an absolute beautiful practice. And it doesn't matter what the guys decide to cook. It could be hot dogs and baked beans and we eat it in the good china as if we are kings and queens, right? And it is such a beautiful thing to receive that gift from those that are used to um, being looked at as not having anything to contribute. And then Will and James out of Dallas uh, talk about this upside down way of hospitality too, of really just the remarkable ways in which the people that are a part of their programming are actually people that are showing up to serve in some really incredible ways. So Jason is one of our guys. He got out. He was in the he was in the faith based dorm. He was in the transitional home, and then he went to work and started working in. Um, CPR and all that, and turned into the largest CPR uh, training uh, organization in East Texas. I mean, he's training hospitals, all this. He's like, I can't believe I can do this. And he comes back and he's trying to give to us. Corey, another guy, he's been out for a number of years. He's got married. He gives every, we have $50 come from him every single month. And then on special events, he gives more. And he goes back in and he trains. I mean, there's this, those are two that, that are top of mind just because I talked to him. But there's a long list of guys who, guys, we needed a painting to be done inside our four dorms. Well, one of our guys donated the paint to the dorm that he was incarcerated in to the to Texas Department of Criminal Justice who had incarcerated him then through us. So, so, you know, and then the guys in the prison, they're the ones that get the painting done. So we see this all the time. We used to, or not we used to, still do a celebration every October. Um, and COVID impacted this past October, but we celebrate guys who have transitioned in a, in a uh, healthy way back into society. So we have three, 400 people that show up at this park. Um, the guys that do the sound system, it was one of our guys donated that guys that do the music, they donate that they bring all the entertainment. Um, they all work it for free. Um, it just, we, we, we see the hospitality all the time. Yeah. I think, you no, know, you know, the one thing is, is that, you know, uh, and, and the beautiful thing about this is that, you know, once these guys go through the whole process of the whole uh, concept of what the organization does, and they they come back, like Will said, and want to give. They We have them come in, they teach classes in the prison with us. They come back and they facilitate classes and teach the same classes that they were once been taught by when they was locked up. Okay, to the other offenders, they give 
Uh, I have a, a large group of what we call them alumni, man. They are some great guys who really, truly, when I can call upon them any moment right now and say, hey, you know, I just made a phone call just last week about, you know, hey, we want to do our cookies and juice night. You know, we, we do, you know, we do cookies and juice and Pastor Reed, whatever you need, how many, how many gallons you need? You know, you need 50 gallons of juice, whatever, whatever you need. Okay. And these brothers will show in, in an instant quickly because of the fact of they believe that this particular work that God is doing in their lives creates them this response to do what it is that that they want to do for others like they would be treated as so yeah. it's it's really a great thing and I, as as James was talking about that and I thought about Orlando who runs all this thing at Christmas time I mean for years Orlando has been bringing in families to serve them at Christmas he works our Christmas program like it's his but here's the thing when as James was talking mm-hmm. what they see is that love that they receive the value that they've been shown, the leadership opportunity that they've taken advantage of, they start seeing how valuable not only Christ is to them, but how valuable they can be to the community. And once they see their value, they and, and several wardens have said this to us. One warden literally said, I want to turn the whole facility into a faith-based build, uh, uh, facility. And because he says what he sees and what they see and hear of our program participants at Hutchins State Jail is something different than all the other ones. There's good programs in there, all kinds of programs, educational, um, you know, all the different programs. But in our program, what they see is the guys talk differently and they write differently. And they know this because they listen to their phone calls and they read their letters. They, they apologize. They repent. They hold people accountable. They teach. They reconnect to their families. You know, it's it's a different level. And they and, and the warden's telling us this, and I've had this for more than one, but one of them said, I want the whole building like this. I mean the whole facility. Uh, because they are they have the ability to check the guys when people can't see because they are listening. So you can see what a gift it has been to uh, to just get a little bit of a snippet of the really remarkable work that these three local leadership foundations are doing in and around prison reform, prison ministry, working with people that are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. And I just want to leave with a couple uh, really beautiful signs of hope that were shared. Um, The first one is a story that Courtney lifted up around um, really breaking the cycle of this generational impact of incarceration. A particular teen participant's Um, that comes to mind. And she had been with us since she was a little girl. Um, As a matter of fact, her mom was involved in the women's ministry, which means that her mom was incarcerated at one point. Her grandmother was involved with us, which meant her grandmother was incarcerated at one point. And her uncle used to live with us. So her uncle was incarcerated as well. And her dad would have been a part of Next Chapter, except he was locked up so frequently that we never actually even had a chance to serve him. So she'd been around Next Chapter since she was probably six or seven. And she was engaged in our children's ministry. Um, She went to summer camping trips with us. Uh, She attended our support group for youth that had incarcerated parents. She had a mentor through us. And she attended a weekly Bible study for as long as I can remember. And when she turned 14, she became the first girl in her family to make it to 14 without having a baby. 
She will also graduate high school this year. She is the first in her family to graduate high school. And so it's easy wow. to see that the two generations that came before her that were involved at Next Chapter and were not able to fully exit the cycle of justice, but they were for her and she will for her children. So sometimes it takes a few generations and that's why long lasting relationships are so vital to this work and not giving up just because you don't see the immediate change you wanna see. Um, and so I love her story because she's a third generation involved here at Next Chapter, but she's the one who's exiting the cycle of incarceration and her children hopefully will never have to even know what it's like because she's the one who broke it. But it took us three generations. And then lastly is this really beautiful uh, example and I think a sign of hope that came out of the work of the Memphis Leadership Foundation. And KUC um, being um, once incarcerated and of course turn his life around to serve young people and, and, and men looking at uh, his circumstances and where he came from and the, de the decisions that he made. And I believe KUC came to Memphis Leadership Foundation probably around 2014, I believe. Um, and he has um, um, gone through different roles in the organization because the opportunities for him to serve were there. And there's been great, um, tremendous growth in him based upon the opportunities that were afforded to him, even uh, mentoring um, 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 young 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 boys that were um, a part of the uh, juvenile justice system here in, in in the city and and began to transform the lives of these people and because of where he'd been and what he went where he where he where he's been and what he's gone through it has really impacted the work that he's done to continue to transform the lives of those that um that that are and have been where he once was but he can see in himself the growth that he has so therefore he's transferring to those individuals so it's propelled him forward as he has become the executive director of economic opportunities um which is uh phenomenal so the the growth that i've seen in in, in kuc is tremendous since 2014 and uh, we just applaud that because of the opportunity that was there and because he wanted to make a difference in the lives of others that had gone through the same things that he went through. And, and I, I would say that um, we, are, we are all imperfect, but we all are flawed. We, we have our issues, but God sees us as being his perfect creation. And to see the city as a playground would be for us to look past all of the flaws that we have, mistakes that we've made, the places we've come from, the color of our skin, the money that we make, the, the classes that we put ourselves in, to see past that and see the goodness of people and see how we can um, coexist together in harmony the way God created us to coexist.
Wow, I don't know how many of these podcasts you've listened to, but that was the smorgasbord right there. I mean, you know, when you go to the all-you-can-eat places, uh, when I was a kid, we used to love that. I mean, but that was so rich. And uh, and I think uh, as we usually end our podcast with a recommendation, I think this one deserves two recommendations. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend something, and then Dave, you recommend something else. And of course, it's a it's a way for us to. Um, just lean into seeing the city as a playground mm-hmm. and uh, something that would open our eyes to see more clearly as God sees the city. And so we've, we've had all kinds of different recommendations, but I'm going to say, I'm going to double back on my earlier. Uh, and by the way, I am not remunerated in any way by the film industry, <laughs> just so you know, but I would like to say that, Hey, I think based on <clears throat> this conversation and some of the things we've uh, we've seen uh, in not only the writing uh, Richard Beck, but the practice of the local leadership foundations. We should watch that movie, Walk the Line with Joaquin Phoenix, because it's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's the story of Johnny Cash, but it does with this kind of an understanding, especially that scene when he goes to Folsom Prison. I think um, mm. you can, you really do understand the fact that that he just, you know, his career. He wasn't there to uh, to save. He was there to be saved, and mm. uh, so that's my recommendation. That that's movie. great, Rick. What about you, Dave? <laughs> Well, mine uh, has two levels to it. So there just simply is the uh, the writings of Richard Beck um, and some of the books that we've talked about. But specifically, what I want to recommend is his blog, Experimental Theology. Um, okay. Richard is quite prolific. And I mean, everything from the Lord of the Rings to Walk the Line to uh, poetry. Uh, it, it's almost... Um, hard to imagine anything that Richard has not commented on. And uh, so I think for those that want to just keep up with uh, what does theology look like, um, this tradition idea uh, in innovative times, that would be the way I'd uh, push people. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if you know this, Dave, but last week was National Identity Theft Awareness Week. And uh, I just want to mention that because I think that uh, what we're talking about here is a way to recover uh, our stolen identity uh, by nice. understanding this direction from a, a theologian, a philosopher, uh, a psychologist, and then um, those who are doing the work in the cities. And so, uh, Rick, I was wondering, so I was wondering how you were going to tie that back together. And you actually, it's a, it. I just threw it out there, right. but I, I just felt inspired, Dave. So, um, <laughs> you know, so just I wanted to innovate on the tradition of identity theft, and so it's, it's <laughs> tradition Perfect. innovation. But uh, a special thanks to Memphis Leadership Foundation, um, the Rochester, Minnesota Leadership Foundation, and Dallas Leadership Foundation. And again, special thanks to our roving reporter, Noah Basket. And uh, Dave, best wishes until our next episode. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.